Hola, this is Luis Avila. Thank you for joining us. One day, after a conference that took place in Phoenix, Arizona, a group of us went out to grab lunch. There were two activists visiting from Oakland, California, and they wanted to try a famous local restaurant. While we were waiting for our food, I told them a story about a time when I yelled the N-word in a mall. I have been living in the United States for a little over a year, and I have heard this word in songs and movies, and I really didn't grasp the weight that the word carried. My friends got very serious when I said the word again, explaining the story. I had just told them how I knew I had done wrong by saying it, because the person I was with, a, a friend, reacted by opening her eyes wide in alarm. My friends at the table had the same face. I had just said the word again, and I knew there was something wrong. One of them told me about something Maya Angelou said in an interview, that the N-word is like poison. Whether you take poison from a vial, or pour it into a Bavarian crystal, it is still poison. I had gone a big part of my adult life without knowing what I was truly saying, and I felt embarrassed when I realized the hate I had carried in my language, in my body, which I had never made an effort to unpack or learn about. I had the privilege of going through my life carelessly without understanding the hurt in the word, the history of the pain that it causes, the fact that just like the word, there were actions beyond language that I was programmed with, that I was acting on against black bodies. I grew up in a society in Mexico where black folks were just recognized to exist by the government a little over a decade ago. In a society where blackness was undesired, where the colonizer taught us that to be like him was the aim. The closer we got to his image, the closer we would be to beauty, to success, to happiness. This is what the TV showed, the commercials, the news. To be black was only to be an archetype. Only a body to blame, produce, or entertain, but not to recognize as equal. As a life that mattered, that had dreams, that shaped the world that was worthy of everything. The programming of a society where the desirable standard is to be white is entrenched to our core. It tries to seduce us, to get rid of whatever takes us away from that standard, the shade of our skin, the language we speak, the way we embrace our family, our ancestors, our history. Last week, after it was announced that Breonna Taylor's murderers hadn't been charged for shooting her six times while in her own bed, it painfully felt like a deja vu. Black folks have been denied of justice in the United States for as long as there's memory. And sadly, it continues to happen. None of us who are in black will ever understand what this is. To know that a system that is supposed to work for everybody doesn't consider you worthy. That charges only police officers with putting others in danger while walking away with impunity for killing a 26-year-old unarmed woman in her own home, for putting their knee on their neck, for shooting them in front of their kids, for breaking their back while riding on the back of a van, for wearing a hoodie, for simply being black. We can be outraged. We can feel pain. We can stand in solidarity. We can and must fight. But we will never fully understand the historical pain carried by black folks, the way the past and the present have denied justice, and still believe that a future can be different. The thing is that in the present and in the future, it will take all of us to dismantle white supremacy, because we're all programmed for it, to chase it and emulate it, to make invisible what is not that standard of whiteness, it will take language, actions, practices in our movements, in our places of work, with our families, in our policy making, 
everywhere, we will have to resist. A fairer and just society will only arrive when black folks are free, and that will take all of us fighting for our collective liberation. All of us, knowing it will be very hard. Iconico Exchange is an effort to discuss how changemakers approach their work. Iconico Exchange. We talk about campaigns, places of tension, and joy in our movements, and get inspired by organizers and activists all around the world. Iconico Exchange. In a few places in society, the consequences of racism are more evident than in the American education system. From the curriculum that tells the story of a country that hasn't truly accepted its role in the creation of a caste system, to the historical segregation of resources and opportunities that black and brown children are afforded, our schools are a good place to look at who we prioritize as society. This week, I have a conversation about cross-cultural power building with Sharonda Bossier, an activist, campaigner, and currently the Deputy Director of Education Leaders of Color a membership organization that works with black and brown senior leaders to elevate their voice and influence in education. This is how Sharonda describes what she does. So the funny thing is that my family jokes that uh, I must be a CIA operative because they have no idea what I actually do. But what I say to my family uh, is that I am a bit of a professional hustle man. I say to them that um, my job is to ask senior education leaders of color across the country what they need and find a way to get it for them. I would say kind of more succinctly, right, that my job is to build community among and build power with senior education leaders across the country for the purposes of shaping policy, um, helping them acquire the social capital they need to advance their personal careers um, and amplifying their work so that they can be held up as models for how we should be thinking about, talking about, and doing public education and schooling in this country. The work that Sharonda does with Edlock is difficult. It demands a consistent power analysis to assess who's making decisions for black and brown children and how to take power to the hands of those most impacted by social inequities in education. So I wanted to know where it all had started. Why did she do this work? You know, I think this this moment in particular, this historical moment, has really given me the opportunity to reflect on that in some really interesting ways. Um, so as I think you know, I'm originally from Los Angeles. I grew up in the Watts section of the city. You know, I was raised by my grandparents who migrated here from the South. And so we always talked about race in my family. Um, and we always talked about what it was like back home versus what it was like here. Those were just conversations that always happened around me. And then I remember the 92 riots. I was eight. And so I remember sort of, you know, understanding that something was happening in the city, right? That uh, something was, was happening in my community. Um, I remember the news coverage. I remember the explicit conversations my grandparents had with us around some of the violence we were seeing, you know, the presence of the National Guard, uh, et cetera. But I think when I really realized that I both needed to and could do something was in high school. I went to a high school that had a 60 percent 
uh, graduate for your graduation rate. And there were lots of community organizations really trying to push LAUSD to get serious about intervening, right? And get serious about putting particularly poor, mostly Black and Latino kids on the path to college. Um, and so I sort of got involved uh, in some of those early campaigns. And then by the time my senior year of high school rolled around, um, I had launched a club on campus. And, you know, my friends and I were volunteering for mayoral campaigns. You know, we were thinking about walking out, et cetera. You know, I told a story recently of how instrumental my teachers were in helping me understand the power of my voice. I, um, two weeks before I started high school, my grandmother, who had raised me since I was two, died. And um, I was a very angry kid um, as a result of that loss. And I, I am just so grateful for the teachers who saw in me both just sort of, they were like, we can channel this anger, <laughs> right? Uh, and who, uh, who knew that I could understand the sort of connection between my experiences um, and what was happening in sort of the broader community and really kind of encouraged me to go that route in that way. It's um, recently I was at a protest uh, related to immigration reform in the country and actually ran into uh, my high school Spanish teacher, right? Who was like still out there. Um, and so it's good to sort of have those full circle moments, so to speak, right? For him to remember me when I was 14 and for me to see him and say like, okay, we're still in this work together. So I think just the combination of my family, you know, our history, how my family got here, some of my early childhood experiences, and then some teachers in high school, it, it just, it feels sort of like a natural evolution. But um, I think this particular moment uh, is really forcing me to kind of step back and ask both how I got here, you know, and what I think my future contributions to this kind of work can be. So I've been thinking about this a lot. What has always attracted me to the work of Sharonda and Edlock is how committed they are to engaging and complicating the work of black and brown leaders when they're in each other's presence. The work of Edlock goes well beyond the desire of conversation. It leverages complexity by asking tough questions of each other. One day, in a conversation with a black leader, he showed me data that proved how Latino children were moving black students out of their better resource schools in some parts of California. How teachers describe these sons and daughters of immigrants as easier to teach, and little by little, pushed out black boys and black girls from the school. In time, the school was run by Latino administrators, and a large segment of black students were now attending other schools that were less resourced and graduated way less students. I was left with a painful thought. I had been celebrating these school's achievements for years, but had never seen the burden it had created on black families. So I asked Sharonda if these type of conversations were helping. Was the work of bringing black and brown folks together helping in the pursuit of a better, a more just education system for our communities? I wish that optimistic Sharonda had shown up to this conversation today. I'm actually a little down on cross-cultural, cross-racial, multiracial coalition building right now. And I think there are a few reasons for that. So... You know, I'm, I'm watching people in my circle and, you know, sort of more broadly via social media, some of the kind of virtual conversations that movement organizations are hosting really struggle to talk about liberation in a way that doesn't frame it as a zero sum game, right? That if I get one step closer to liberation, this other group, right, has 
fundamentally lost out on something, right? I'm, I'm out at a protest a couple of weeks ago. Um, I see uh, someone holding a sign that says, you know, Latinx or BLM, right? And I'm like, okay, dope. And I keep moving. And then there's this conversation where folks are like, well, some of us are, you know, some Latinx folks are Black. Or, you know, there have been a a, a recent spree of attacks on street vendors, mostly Latino street vendors in Los Angeles. And, you know, some of the Latino activists are like, y'all were out there for BLM, but BLM isn't out here for for our street vendors. And it's like, how do we have a conversation about everyone winning in a way that isn't rooted in either anti-Blackness or some other form of discrimination against folks who are, you know, also struggling for their own liberation or representation? And I am just growing increasingly concerned that people feel like the what is available to us is shrinking, right, in terms of resources, in terms of support, in terms of representation, and folks are really doubling down on wanting to be with their people, however they define that. But my fear is that people are defining that in increasingly narrow ways and in ways that actually even erase the diversity that exists within our communities. And I, I, am, I don't know how we break through that. You know, at, at Edlock, we set out from the very beginning to be um, a Black and Brown organization, right? From our leadership to our leadership committee, right? Our fiduciary board, our advisory boards, et cetera. And even in that space, right? We get a ton of pushback um, around representation in the network, around the diversity and, you know, within the network, people feeling like, you know, they want to have conversations about anti-Blackness or colorism or whatever it is but not being sure that the space is a safe space. And so I just, um, I'm feeling increasingly over the past couple of months, like we just have so much more work to do. I have not always felt that way. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I, um, in in a community and at a time actually, right, where uh, Watts and Compton, which is where I spent most of my time, were undergoing significant demographic shifts, right? But for the most part, we had sort of, I thought, had figured it out, right? How to, how to kind of coexist. And my youngest sister is 14 years younger than I am. She just has a very different experience, right? Um, an experience of feeling marginalized, an experience of, you know, feeling um, like some of her mostly Mexican and Salvadoran, right, friends said really anti-Black things. And so, yeah, I'm just worried that we're losing on that front. I wish I had a more optimistic response. This show isn't meant to make us feel good, but to help us make meaning of the moment. So Sharonda's feeling of uncertainty about the future isn't only understandable, but actually a good way to keep alert. Only in constantly working against this programming we've been through in support of white supremacy, we can do better. So what's coming out from her work lately? Are there any signs of progress? I I will say that... um what I have seen come out of some of the Edlock conversations, right? It is, is a willingness for folks to work together, right? Um, and, and to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to have the hard conversations. I know also, you know, that some of our members are really pushing some of the more Latino-led organizations, right, to think about the inclusion of Black Latino folks. And to have conversations about anti-Blackness and colorism and then the way that they show up in those spaces and who feels welcome. We have that conversation when our members fill out our annual membership survey, right? We're like, how do you identify what affinity groups did you participate in? 
And we notice overwhelmingly that a lot of our Black Latino folks don't choose a Latino affinity group space. And so we're like, how do we begin to have the conversation about the richness of, of that community, right? Um, you know, our, our CEO is, is, is a Mexican woman, right? And the daughter of immigrants. And it's like, she um, has, I think, in some ways taken on leadership in that conversation because it's not my community, right? But I also think that in, in you know, in some Black circles, I've, I've had to say to folks, you know, you you can't say you can't say that right that if the Compton School Board looks fundamentally different um, that black people will never get a high paying job in Compton again right like that that's a problem and the Compton School Board should be reflective of the Compton student body right and the Compton student body is no longer majority black and so it's I I think that what I do see happening in our space is a willingness to call each other in and say like let's talk about what you just said or what you just did and what that's really rooted in and how part of being part of this community is working through that and working through that together. It's hard. Racism is something we created to allow ourselves to exploit others without remorse. We had to dehumanize other people so we can inflict as much pain in their bodies as we need to without feeling guilt. And it seems in the United States, we have been really successful at this dehumanization of black bodies for a very long time. Even those of us raised in other places get programmed. How is it that the American brand of white supremacy hasn't only stuck for so long, but it's taught in our schools, amplified in cultural productions, in movies and shows, and practiced by so many of us, even if we come from somewhere else? So one of the things that my grandfather said to me, you know, my grandfather served uh, almost 30 years in the military and he served in um, Korea toward the tail end and then, you know, early in Vietnam. And one of the things that he said to me was that the first thing America exports is anti-blackness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so he would, you know, uh, throughout his travels, come in contact with folks who were seeing a black person for the first time, right? Um, and, And knew the slur. And so I think... I think anti-Blackness is a major American export, right? And when we think about the sort of hegemony of American culture, right, across the world, it's inevitable that that sort of goes with it because, you know, the well is tainted with that. And and the last thing that I will say on this is it's also why it's so important that what our schools teach, right, be much more reflective of the real history of this country and the experiences of you know, non-white people in this country. I just think that um, being more honest about our history um, would solve for a lot of what I think we are trying to solve for. So to your point, um, would help us get to a place of actually attacking what's at the root of this. Now, you may be thinking, Luis, you're blaming everything on white people. But no, that is not what this conversation is about. I'm talking about white supremacy, a social norm, a pact that we will agree to implicitly, and in some cases explicitly, which defines what is good and what is bad in our society, what is pure and what is soiled, what is given an opportunity and what is killed without consequence. And while this social norm has been part of all of our lives in a certain degree, yes, including us people of color, it's how and when we decide to stop following this norm that puts a group above another where we can change our society. And in a country where population majorities are changing, where Latinos are the second largest ethnic group in the country, a time when the balance of power is being contested and politicians are finding divisions as a good way to pit us against each other through ads and rhetoric in speeches and rallies, we have to really investigate what is our responsibility to not become the continuation of the oppressor. 
to deeply reflect on how we need to build real collective power with black, brown, Asian, white, and other communities to build something where we can all be equal? Um, look, I listened to, um, you know, a couple of sort of, I, they're going to be upset if I call them elders, but I will call them elders anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I listened to, I listened to them talk about some of the early work of trying to build cross-racial coalitions in Los Angeles and how they were like, look, we fought like hell behind closed doors, right? And we sometimes were walking out to press conferences really upset with each other, right? And not really on the same page about a lot. But we understood that it was important to stand shoulder to shoulder and be in solidarity with one another. I don't know how we, I don't know how we get back there, right? I, I do think that part of the reason that adds like the one, you know, you're, you're talking about, right, really resonate is that we have not placed enough emphasis on creating cross-racial, multiracial community building opportunities, right? I think even, look, we've only been around, and by we, I mean Edlock, right, unofficially for six years, right, officially for four. Um, but we were very clear from the beginning that we wanted to be a black and brown space, right? And that's not to knock anybody else who made decisions otherwise, right? Um, but I think what we saw happening was people retreating to their corners, right? Um, and us wanting to ensure that we didn't lose the opportunity to be in community and conversation with one another without white people in the room, mm -hmm. right? Without white people mediating the exchanges we were having. Or even the because, gays. Or even the gays, right? Just even the, just like the, the, their very present, mm -hmm. right, changes things. I think we are seeing voters, particularly on the left, because I think the right has had its sort of revolution and that's why the right has moved further right, right? Mm -hmm. the, the sort of the loudest wing of that party, I think, has moved the sort of majority of that party or the center of that party further right, right? But I think we're seeing, you know, on the left, we're seeing, you know, folks say, if you don't speak to our issues, we are out. And I think you know, I, I could go on and on about how we don't actually live in a democracy, especially when it comes to voting, you know, in the presidential election because of the electoral college, right, which makes a third party option really just not viable, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that at, at the local and state level, right, uh, you are going to see hopefully, right, representatives who are much more representative of the ethnic, racial and ideological diversity of the left, and my hunch is that some of the House seats, right, and some of the people who end up representing us in the House will be much more representative and reflective of the um, ideological and racial diversity of the left. But I, I am really worried that for a long time, presidential politics and, and quite honestly, the Senate, right, are going to remain places where we are striking bargains that we don't want to strike because of the way our elections are set up. So when people say that the only way to end racism is X or Y or Z, it's probably the wrong answer. It took generations of individuals to build and agree to these norms. So it will take us to radically change our system of government, one that has led the charge on converting white supremacy into policy, in housing, in healthcare, in voting, in education. But besides changing the system, we have to change our institutions as well our philanthropic organizations and who and how they give, our nonprofits and advocacy groups and who they uplift and who's in charge, our academia and companies, our media and other institutions. But institutions are also made of people. 
So we also have to learn how to treat one another with respect and dignity, even when we don't know each other. So radically changing our system, our institutions, our interpersonal relationships takes a lot. It's exhausting, more so when there's so much happening around us. So how is an organization that works to change all of these odds dealing with the current mood? How is it that Sharonda and Edlock currently navigate 2020, this year from hell? Yeah, so, you know, in the honestly, right now, we are doing two things, right? One is um, caring for our members as people, which is incredibly, incredibly important. So many of our folks are in very senior leadership roles. They are isolated in their roles. They are the only, you know, in their organization. So if they're not the CEO, but they're in a cabinet role, right, it's highly likely that there are no other people of color, right, uh, in, at that level of leadership within their organization. And so they are feeling just isolated, right, um, while also having to go to work in the middle of a global <laughs> health pandemic, right, Um trying to figure out, you know, we were waiting on the Supreme Court's decision around DACA, right? Mm -hmm. We, um, you know, have been watching, again, another wave of protests across the country around, you know, or, you know, response to police brutality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, our people are showing up carrying a lot. um, And everyone is carrying a lot right now. But there is always sort of that additional tax, that additional burden on our folks. And so, We've just been caring for our people as people. We have been saying, like, let's get you, you know, some tools around how to meditate and breathe. Let's talk about how other organizations have, you know, changed their PTO policies to, you know, allow for more kind of self-care, you know, opportunities for their staff or how people are, you know, providing wellness stipends to their staff, whatever that is. Um, We've been saying, like, for those of you who are, you know, full-time consultants and are unsure about your income, let's talk about financial planning and provide you with opportunities to talk about as financial planner so that you feel safe and secure, right? Despite the fact that our members are very successful professionally, many of them come from families where these were just not regular conversations, right? Um, And so we are recognizing that. The second thing that we are doing is, um, you know, trying to ensure that our members are in position to influence and shape some of the conversations and policies that are taking place or being drawn up in the moment. Um, So, uh, you know, ensuring that people have learning opportunities uh, to help them feel prepared to enter into some of those conversations, right? If that's at the district level around what the opening can or should look like if that's with the campaigns, right? Um, and our folks trying to ensure that the platforms are reflective of Edlock's values and priorities and of what we know, right, will make a difference for the kids we care most about. And doing a lot of work, uh, creating opportunities for our members to engage with just really smart thought leaders um, who are uh, just pushing, pushing them to see this moment as an opportunity to really reimagine uh, what schooling can and should look like. I don't, I don't think we fully understand the impact that this pandemic will have on, on, on our kids, right. On their social and emotional development. Um, and I care about that first and foremost, mm-hmm. um, but just on the wellness of our young people. Um, and so we've been trying to show up in that way and model that for our leaders. While recording this episode, Sharonda and I joked about how difficult it was to talk about the immensity of this issue with the limited time we had. So I asked her what she'd like to explore if we had more time. Um, but honestly, I think one of the reasons we launched Edlock, right, was really that we wanted to create an opportunity for people who were living and working and breathing education, right, uh, to engage with leaders 
um, in different sectors, right? Often educators feel pretty siloed in our work, right? We feel like we've kind of been left to figure out public education on our own. Um, and so by building this community and inviting to the table people who care about immigration reform and criminal justice reform and housing and healthcare, et cetera, we were really hoping to create rich opportunities for people not just to sort of think differently, right, but to actually build community and behave differently and to collaborate across sectors. Um, and we wanted our educators to be thinking about how to lend their voices and their expertise to broader social justice issues, right? Um, and so I have seen at the very grassroots level, right, some teachers really kind of take on organizing and activist work um, in ways that I would love to see some of our more senior education leaders kind of lean in. What I would love to talk about is what it means to sort of break down this wall that has kept educators isolated from other social justice advocates and, and, and activists um, and to build a real community that leverages the expertise and experiences, and quite honestly, the resources, right? There's a ton of money in public education mm. um, to think differently about the social justice space. For years, and every time a racial injustice captures the imagination of mainstream America, I get emails, calls, texts, asking for recommendations on anti-racist content. And yes, there are excellent books and movies, a Google search away. But what I found even more helpful in learning what I can do is to take it like going to the gym, something I have to work on constantly. I will never stop learning of the ways I've been programmed to see others or not to see them. So while books and podcasts give us very helpful language, it's when we talk to others and deeply listen to what hurts, to what triggers, to what helps when we continue to change. We need to explore our biases and investigate their roots it's better to always be awakening than to pretend to be woke. To learn more about education leaders of color and the work of Sharonda Bossier, visit edlock.org. That is E-D-L-O-C.org. You can also check out the New York Times podcast, The Daily, that did a beautiful piece on Sharonda's activism by going to The Daily's podcast page. This year, police brutality is on the ballot. Visit votequadrant.com to learn how your vote can impact the much-needed transformation of the justice system. That is votequadrant.com. Find black-led organizations in your community and donate to their work or uplift their efforts and demands with your friends and family. Big thanks to Grecia Beltran for helping us with this episode's production, to Francisco Flores for the beautiful sound mixing, to Monica Nowakowski and Jacob Acuña for helping with promotion, to Carla Chavarria for the graphics, and to you for helping us gain more listeners every single week. We do this podcast because we want to create a space of reflection and learning, to make meaning together. If you like this or other episodes, rate us and review us. It helps others find us. You can also share it on your social platforms and help us continue growing this community. The music is by Barrio Lindo, and the writing and editing was done by me, Luis Avila. Before we leave, in Mexico there's a saying, if we would hold a moment of silence for every person murdered by the state, we will be silenced forever. So rather than asking for silence, I will leave you with the names of some of the women killed by police in the last few years. Say their names. Keep their memory alive. A Tatiana Jefferson, 28. Pamela Turner, 45. Corinne Gaines, 23. 
Yvette Smith, 47. Miriam Carey, 34. Shelly Frey, 27. Darnisha Harris, 16. Melissa Williams, 30. Chantel Davis, 23. Rekia Boyd, 22. Ayana Stanley Jones, 7. Tarika Wilson, 26. Katherine Johnston, 92. Kendra James, 21. Tisha Miller, 19. Tanisha Anderson, 37. Brianna Taylor, 26. Brianna Taylor, 26. Brianna Taylor, 26. Say her name. I, I appreciate that. Um, I am grateful, honestly, for the opportunity to do the work that I do every day. It is hard. And as you heard, right, I think just very honestly, I'm, I'm at a little bit of a low point. Um, and I'm, I am, I'm feeling the weight of the world and I am feeling a deep desire to be in the thick of things and feeling woefully and inadequate, um, in my fight to bring about change and, um, to feel so privileged in so many ways and far more privileged than I have ever been at any other point in my life. Right. Um, and to still feel um, not enough is, is a hard thing. The views and opinions expressed by the guests and hosts of Iconico Exchange are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Iconico or the Fuerta Network.